But I would like for you to turn to two places this morning, if you would, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 48. If you'll find 1 Peter chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 48, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5 to start with. 1 Peter chapter 5, if you would, find verse 5 and verse 6. The Bible says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, underline this or mark this, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. I want to preach on this subject this morning, how to get under the hand of God. How to get under the hand of God. Be seated, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the chance to be able to preach to this group. And I am truly humbled to stand here, Lord God, before this uh, amazing group of young folks. And Father God, I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to share my heart with them today. And Father, I pray, God, that you would just take, Lord, your hand. I'd love for you just to put me under it one more time. That, God, I may be able to preach and impact somebody here today, God, in the way that you impacted my life. And, Father, I pray, God, that you would just give us an outpouring of your Holy Spirit, Lord God, that would draw our attention to your Word today and to your Son. And, Father God, I ask, Lord, that you would just guide my heart, my mind today. And, Father, you just stay the hand of the devil, keep him from inter interrupting or hindering this in any way, Father. And Lord God, whenever the invitation is given, may there be hearts that are yielded. May there be folks, Lord God, that surrender. May there be folks, Lord God, that, Lord, just get underneath the hand where the blessings are at. And Father God, I thank you, Lord, again for these men that have stood in this pulpit. I thank you for the men that I've got the opportunity to meet that have, uh, Lord, already impacted my life today and yesterday. And Father, we ask God for your blessings on our time. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. As we go uh, through this passage, I want to give you just a couple of things this morning by way of introduction that will help you to kind of understand the context of the passage that we're looking at here in 1 Peter. Number one, I want you to think for just a moment about the audience that Peter is trying to reach. There's an audience that he has in mind here. And if you look down in verse uh, 5, it says, Yea, all of you. In other words, he's including everyone in this particular audience. He was sending this letter out to, to a group of, uh, of Jews that were scattered around, many of which were in churches in separate places, and this was to be read to them. And, and so he wanted to make sure he didn't miss anybody. And within that group, if you would, uh, you would find maybe some young men that were called to preach, some young ladies that were uh, uh, there that uh, maybe were called uh, to the mission field, or, or, or all kinds of different folks elderly folks, older folks, preachers, pastors, evangelists, um, all of which would come underneath this, and then just everyday common church folk, uh, just everyday individuals. He wanted to make sure he missed nobody in that whenever he gave this particular passage. He said, yea, all of you, I want you to understand what I'm getting ready to tell you, what I want you to know. And then there's the aim of the passage. And if you would look down here again in uh, verse 5, uh, or verse 6, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. His, his aim was this, to get everybody, all of the people that he was going to send this letter out to, to get them under the hand of God. Under the hand of God where the blessings of God are at, and under the hand of God where the provisions of God are at, and under the hand of God where His protection would be at. He wanted to make sure he got everybody under the hand of God. 
Now, the thought of getting them under the hand of God centered around one central word. If you would look back again with me in verses 5 and 6, it repeatedly shows up. It says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. How many of y'all see that word in your Bible? Humility. Then notice it says again at the end, God giveth grace to the humble. And then it says again in verse 6, humble yourselves. So to get under the hand of God, the hub that this thought operates around is the word humble or the word humility. In other words, you've got to lower yourself down to get under the hand of God. You've got to bring yourself down to a particular level before you can get to where God can bless you. And I I think about the author that wrote this now. I think about how this particular author, if there was anybody qualified to talk about humility and to talk about this subject, it had to have been Peter. You know, early on in his life, Peter lacked humility. And because he lacked humility, God took his hand off of Peter for a moment And then all of a sudden, Peter began to do some things that we would never think a Christian would ever do. We would never think a Christian, a called man of God would ever do. He began to deny the Lord and he began to curse and to swear and and, and we know the whole story behind that. So when he lacked humility, God pulled his hand back and Peter got himself in trouble. But when he learned humility later on in life, when he was an older gentleman, or, or after even after the resurrection even, uh, he learned that humility and God began to put his hand back on Peter and then God began to use Peter, didn't he? God began to take Peter and do some miraculous and amazing things with him. We know where he preached and over 3,000 got saved and we know the story about how he wrote the epistles that he wrote here and how God used him in a tremendous way and what a great man of God he became after he learned that humility. And so Peter's giving us some thoughts here that are very dear to his heart. Some thoughts that are very dear to my heart about how we can get under the hand of God where God can use us. How many of you would raise your hand up and say, Preacher, I want God to use me in some way in my life. Would you raise your hand? I want God, I don't, I don't know what God maybe even wants me to do, but I want Him to use me. I want Him to use me in a local church or maybe as a pastor, an evangelist, a preacher, a singer, a missionary, maybe in a Christian school, but I want God to use me. And if that's you today, I'm going to show you how to get under the hand of God where God can use you. Now, number one, notice here that Peter focuses on this thought, clothing, clothing. Notice down here in verse 5, it says this, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Be clothed. I love this. I love what God does whenever He takes a common word that we're all familiar with and links it to a complex thought so that everyday people can understand the deep truths of the Word of God. I'm thankful for that. Uh, He gives us something here we can all relate to. So when I see that word clothing, I can now relate three things to the subject of humility. Three things that deal with clothing. Number one is a choice. A choice. How many of you would agree with me that you chose to put clothes on this morning? All right. I sure hope here at, at West Coast, nobody had to force you to get dressed to come to chapel today. You made a choice to put your clothes on today. 
You know, there are some people that do not make choices to do that. I was preaching in another country. I got off the plane and uh, had some folks come take me uh, from the airport. And I was going uh, two hours up into the jungle to go preach. And, and as we were going down this particular highway, I was riding with the, with the men that were there. And I looked over and standing in the median was an individual, a man, who did not have on one article of clothing. And I looked at these guys and I said, well, that's something you don't normally see every day where I come from. And they said, well, it is something you'll see here where we come from. And I said, why is that man not wearing any clothes? Has nobody taken him clothes? I mean, is he one of those that are in need? And they said, no, we've taken him all kinds of clothes. He chooses not to wear them. And he comes out every day and stands in this medium while traffic's going up and down the road. And he stands there till the traffic dies down and he goes back out into the jungle. He chose not to put clothes on. You chose, thank God, to put clothes on today. And that tells me something about humility. Humility is not a gift. Humility is not a talent. Humility is not a genetic trait. Humility is not something you're born with. Hey, humility is something you choose to do every day of your life. You choose to be humble or you choose to be haughty. You choose to humble yourself and lower yourself or you choose to lift yourself up. So you have a choice whether to be humble or not. You have a choice today. But then it tells me a second thing about clothing. That there are counterfeits. There are counterfeit Nikes. There are counterfeit Under Armour. There's counterfeit Converse. There's all kinds of counterfeit clothing. Counterfeit guest jeans and counterfeit this and counterfeit that. And so we know that there can be counterfeit clothes as well. But do you know that there can also be, you can clothe yourself in counterfeit humility? Do you know that, that you can put on an air of humility, but even in your own heart, you know that you're not humble. You just want everybody else to think you're humble. Because if they pick up on how haughty you are and how prideful you may be, then they might not use you or they might not bring you into their church or they might not bring you onto their staff. And so there, there's a counterfeit humility that's there that oftentimes shows up in the churches that we're in and amongst the people. Hey, I've met preachers before that had a counterfeit humility. I've met missionaries with a counterfeit humility. And bless God, we know that churches have people in them with a counterfeit humility. So you can actually counterfeit that. But that does not make you humble, does it? But then there's a third thing, the confirmation of this clothing. Whenever you came in here today, you didn't have to come up and say, Preacher, guess what? I've got clothes on. You didn't have to tell me that. I can see that. I can see it. And I want you to understand that when you're truly humble, you don't have to tell me that. You don't have to tell me that you're humble today. As a matter of fact, I'm going to have a few red flags that are going to come up when you start telling me you're humble. Listen, if you're truly humble, it's going to show up in your life without you ever having to say anything to anybody. It's going to show up in your preaching. It's going to show up in your singing. It's going to show up in your classroom. It'll show up in your dorm room. Whenever you're truly humble, you don't have to tell anybody that you're humble. It will just show in your life. It will be confirmed by the life that you live. So when we see this, we see several things here that we can relate to the subject of humility, how to get underneath the hand of God. But then I see a second thought here. I see a caution not only a clothing, but a caution. Look down in verse 5, and there is a very, 
very important statement that, that Peter makes. The Bible says, be clothed with humility. Now notice the colon there, so there's a separate thought beginning to take place. For God resisteth the proud. Now, that is directly related to the next statement that's going to be made in, in verse 6 here, which we'll get to in a moment. As a matter of fact, look, it says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. That's a reference back to the statement where God resisteth the proud. Now, there is something very important that Peter is trying to get across here. Understand that we're in the, uh, the Judeo-Christian epistles right now. The audience is predominantly saved Jews. And so he's writing to a particular group that fits a particular culture that is, it has in mind particular things that are related to their culture. And so Peter, who is a Jew... And he's talking in 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1 to Jews that are scattered. And, and, and he's trying to relate something to them that they would understand based on their culture. So what was that? Well, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia brought up a very interesting point about this. Because Peter was a Jew talking to Jews, he was using terminology that they were familiar with that went way back to the tabernacle and the temple sacrifices. And so what he was trying to get across to them was this, that in the time of the tabernacle and the temple sacrifices, there were three animals that were brought into the temple or the tabernacle for a sacrifice to be done a certain way. One was a bullock, the other was a ram, and the third was a scapegoat. And when they brought these animals in, whether it was the tabernacle or the temple, there was a certain procedure that had to be done. So the person brings, if you could picture the bullock or the, the, the ram or the scapegoat, and they're bringing them up, and, they, and they, there's Aaron or whoever may have been the priest at that time, and, and the high priest and the, and, the, and the priestly tribe, and they bring them up there. And when they bring them up to, to those men those men would take their hands then and press down on the head of the bullock or the ram or the scapegoat. And when they did that, they literally began to push down on these animals. And as they were doing that, it was a sign and a symbol that they were imparting or placing upon those animals the sins of the individual that brought them up. There was a pushing there. Now, here's the important part about that. They only did that with these three animals, these three particular animals. These three animals were what we would call proud animals. These animals were not like a lamb. A lamb will keep its head down on its own accord very often. But the bullock and the ram and the scapegoat, they walk with their heads up unless they're eating. They walk with their heads up like this. So when they would bring them in, their heads would be up and they would begin to push down on, and press down on the heads of these animals. And when they did that... These animals, because they did not like to have their head down, would begin to lift themselves up. And they would have to resist that. Those men would have to keep pushing hard and, and trying to keep their heads down. And so they would lift against that and resist that. And there was a struggle that went on. That animal did not want to lower itself. And there you've got the priest who's trying to keep that animal's head down as he presses down on that animal. I said all that to say this. Many times, we will say while we're working for God or preaching or doing whatever it is God's got us doing, boy, the devil is really working against me. When in reality, it may just be God that is resisting you. 
Because you have allowed pride to creep up into your life. You begin to lift yourself up against a particular individual. You lift yourself up against a preacher. You lift yourself up against another church. And here you are trying to pick yourself up and trying to lift yourself up. And the whole time you think the devil's the one trying to work against you, God is the one trying to push you back down where you belong. He's resisting you. Can I tell you, God will resist the service you try to give to Him if you are lifting yourself up. God will resist the studying you're trying to do for Him if you lift yourself up. God will resist the sermons you try to preach for Him if you try to lift yourself up. God will resist the singing that you try to do for Him if you try to lift yourself up. He will resist you because He's trying to get you back down to where He can use you. I'm going to tell you a very personal story. There was a few things Dr. Shetler and I were talking yesterday as we ate supper and he asked me some questions and things like that, partly because nobody knows who I am and I want to make sure some psycho's not in here, right? Amen. I understand that. I would do the same thing. You don't want a man coming in that, you know, after something took 30 years to build up and tear it down in 30 minutes, right? I, I get that. So, but there were certain things I left out on purpose because I did not want to spoil this message today. And I almost am ashamed uh, uh, to even say this, but I'm going to show you how completely ignorant of anything Christian I was when I got saved. I didn't grow up in a churchy background. I didn't grow up in a churchy environment. Um, never heard the gospel till uh, my wife witnessed to me and told me. And so when I got saved, I knew nothing. And I mean less than nothing. I couldn't have gotten any less than nothing than what I was. I believe there are Muslims that actually know more than I, than, than I did at that time about Christianity. So somebody put in my hands a King James Bible and said to read it. I didn't know anything. Didn't know about anything. And I don't know why my mindset was like this other than the fact that I went to a Lutheran church a little bit here and there. And, and maybe it was because they opened and read out of the, their scriptures and closed it up and then nobody carried a Bible, nobody had a Bible that maybe my mindset went like this, but... I remember when I got my first King James Bible, somebody put it in my hands. I didn't know anything. I opened it. You know how you do, like, you know how people do, they just kind of open to a random spot. I read one text, and I knew immediately there was something different about this book. I knew immediately there was something supernatural. I didn't know anything, but I knew that. I knew this thing because it touched my heart in a way that I cannot even begin to describe to you. But let me show you how ignorant I was. I... Opened it up, I read that, and I thought, oh, good. Oh, wow, what a thing. And I shut it. And here's what I thought. You can only read one verse a day. One. So you know what I did that night? I went to bed, and I laid awake all night long, waiting for the alarm clock to go off so I could get back up and read one more verse. It never dawned on me that that was my Bible and I could open it anytime I wanted to. Eventually, it dawned on me, you idiot, you can open the Bible and read it anytime you want. So I did, and I began to read, and, and the more I read, the more God changed my heart. The more God stirred me, the more God began to do a work in me. 
And it wasn't long until God began to call me to preach. I still knew nothing. In September the 28th of 2000, 4 o'clock in the morning, I got on my face at my couch at 6338 Barrier Road in Concord, North Carolina, and I said, God, if this is what you want me to do, then I'm going to do it, and, and, and I am going to uh, allow you to do whatever you want with my life. I don't understand it. I don't know what I'm doing, but I know you're asking me to do this. And so I surrendered to God's call to preach. And then I went and told my preacher that next day, and I said, God has called me to preach. And he told me, he said, well, then you're preaching next Sunday. I was blown away. I said, okay. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything. So I took my Bible and I went into the pulpit. I prayed. I said, God, give me something to tell these people. He gave me a little something on the widow woman and her two mites. Uh, and, and so I went up and I preached. Now, now, when I got through preaching, I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about homiletics or hermeneutics or exegesis or bibliology or, or, or Greek or Hebrew. I didn't know any of that stuff. I just knew that this book had something in it that could change lives. That's all I knew. And I got up and I preached and a soul got saved. And then God gave me another opportunity to preach and another. And it seemed like every time I stood up, souls got saved. And eventually God said, it's time for you to go pastor. I didn't know anything. But God called me to pastor. And I took my Bible that I knew could radically transform every life that I could give it to. And I began to preach it to a group. And soul after soul began to get saved. Lives began to be changed. I went up into the mountains of Virginia. And I stood in a little old country church that was up there that had about 30 people in it. was getting ready to close its doors. And I began to do the only thing I knew to do. And that was to open up this old Bible and just simply preach and tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's seemed like every Sunday morning and every Sunday night and every Wednesday night that people just kept getting saved. The sheriff got saved. He allowed me to go into the jails and preach. I never had a jail ministry. Nobody even told me anything. He didn't know anything about a jail ministry. He had banned anybody from going in there. So he opens up the door of the jail. You know what he did? He put me in a jail that, that was supposed to hold 32 people. It's such a bad area. They had 115 people crammed in a 32-person jail. I'm talking murderers, rapists, child molesters, the, the worst, the blackest, the darkest you could ever imagine. And he locked me in there with them. Not on this side of the bars, but on that side. And he said, I'll be back to get you in an, in an hour. Preach. And I stood there and preached. And do you know that so many of those men got saved that the sheriff took them out and locked them in chains in their orange jumpsuits and put them in vans and brought them on a weekday to the church and he put guards around the church and he brought them in the bottom, let me baptize them in chains and took them out the top and put them back in the van. People just kept getting saved. I stood on the street corner in Pennington Gap, Virginia because I knew there were people there that could not come to where I was at. And I stood there and I preached on the street corner the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't tell them how wicked they were and I didn't tell them that they shouldn't be wearing this or wearing that. I told them there was hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. And 14 got saved on the street. People just kept getting saved. We had that little church that held a hundred people. That was it. Now I'm talking if you stuck them in the choir. Matter of fact, that church would fit up here. 
There were so many people that got saved, we had to open the windows, put them around the church. They were setting up banks in the back with the door open. This was in December. We had 240 people at a church that held 100. And whenever I would preach God, and again, the whole time, I I just, all I knew, all I knew was that this book could change lives. And and when I preached, there would be people that would be walking down the street to do drug deals. And they would come in the church and just keep walking down the aisle and get saved by the grace of God. We preached at the fair, people got saved. I mean, everywhere it went, that's all I knew. I didn't know anything, but I just knew this book was amazing. Now, I said all that to say this. I want you to listen very carefully. You know, ignorant people, there's two things about them. Either they're dangerous or they can be deceived. Anybody you keep in ignorance, they're either going to be dangerous or deceived. I fell on the latter half of that where you could be deceived. I had a man come up to me and gave me some advice during the midst of this incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. And here's what he said. If you don't get you a degree, nobody's ever going to take you seriously. Now let me stop and say this. I think one of the best things you could ever possibly do is get a Christian education. And I mean that. To come to a place like this, I would have given anything if God could have sent me to a place like this. It just was not, I I didn't even know this place existed until three years ago. I didn't even know who Dr. Paul Chapel was until three years ago. Period. I was, I was so far out of the loop and so ignorant of things I just didn't know. And the guy said, if you don't get you a degree, he said, nobody's going to ever take you seriously. Now, degrees are great, but they're not great when you start with the mentality I, I was getting ready to have. Well, I've got to get a degree, not so I can win more people to the Lord or make sure I'm biblically sound or doctrinally correct. I've got to get a degree so people are going to take me seriously. That's the wrong reason. And so I began to work on some online degrees, if you would. And I, in my mind, I'm still preaching, I'm going, but I'm in my mind now, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to get this degree and people are going to take me seriously. So I get my bachelor's degree, I put it up on the wall, right behind my desk where everybody can see it. I work feverishly and I get my master's degree, I put it on the wall. Now I'm not saying it's anything even close to what you guys get here. What you get here is superior. And I mean, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. This was just pieces of paper. But I'm getting these because... I want somebody to take me seriously now. I never thought for one second that God had been taking me seriously for years. I get my, my doctor of theology, I throw it up on the wall, and I had them just perfectly. I mean, you know, I measured it out, made sure they were right where, and I made sure that anybody walked in my office, bless God, they were going to see them. When people come in and talk to me, I'd get up and I'd prop there on my, I had this little shelf, I'd prop there on that shelf to make sure that they were looking at me in line with my degrees. It's a God's honest truth. I was so proud of that because I wanted people to take me seriously. Let me tell you what happened. It was like God Almighty reached over and I had this switch on me that he flipped on several years earlier and he turned it off. And I will tell you that I could not preach my way out of a wet paper bag after that. I didn't have enough power on me to blow the fuzz off a dandelion. People stopped getting saved. It was like when I preached that the words wouldn't even get past the pulpit. There was no outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There was no move of God. I mean, it was like he shut that thing off. Now, this went on for a little while because you know churches can go through dry spells from times. So I just said, well, this is a dry spell. 
But I'm going to tell you, my beloved, dear, and wonderful wife, who is, I'm telling you men, if you could get you a wife that will be honest with you and not tell you everything you want to hear, you're going to have a great woman. I've got a thing up on my wall that says, he that findeth a wife findeth a good thing. And I've got my wife's picture there. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I wouldn't be standing here today if this didn't happen. There was a time when I got through preaching on a Sunday morning, nothing happened. Dead is 4 o'clock. We go home, and she walks up to me with that finger and sticks it in my face. She said, what is wrong with you? She said, there's something wrong with you. She said, are you into something you shouldn't be into? Are you doing things you should not be doing? She said, I said, what are you talking about? She said, because your preaching is dead. There's something wrong with you. Now, I knew it as well. But I couldn't put my finger on what it was. But she knew it. I knew it. She said, you need to find out what is wrong with you. That Monday morning, I went into my office. I sat down at my desk and I put my hands, because if you ever had the power of God on you one time and you lose it, there is nothing more devastating than that. It is like losing a spouse. And I sat there with my hands in my head and I wept until my desk was covered in tears and I said, God, I would rather die than to ever preach another message like I preached Sunday. I, I've got to know, if you can't show me what is wrong with me and show me what is, what is going on and show me why this is happening, then I don't want to ever step in that pulpit again. And I wept and I cried and I'm not saying God spoke to me in an audible voice, but I will tell you God spoke to me and He said as clear as I'm te- uh, preaching right now, He said, turn around. And when I turned around and looked, I saw those three papers on the wall. And when I saw those three degrees up there on the wall, he said, that's your problem. And as quick as I could get up, I stood in my chair. I took those degrees down off the wall. I put them in a closet. And as God is my witness, to this day, I have no idea where they're at. And I got on my face and said, God, if you'll just give me a touch one more time. If you'll just show me one more time that you can use me, I will not do that again. That next Sunday I stood in the pulpit and God began to pour His Holy Spirit out again. And do you know soul after soul after soul began to walk down that aisle and began to get saved again? Hey, I said all that to say this. You better watch out if you start trying to pick yourself up and lift yourself up. God will take His hand off of you and resist everything you're doing. And God will quit using you and His power will be gone. It'll be over. I don't want to ever feel like I felt there again. Now, I want to give you one more thing, and I want you to see this here because it gets even better. There's a call in verse 6. Now, remember I told you that verse 5 is now connected with verse 6. God resisteth the proud. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 48 and a tradition of the Jewish fathers, if you would turn there with me. Where's Caleb at? Caleb that sang. Where are you at? Caleb, come up here for just a moment. Dr. Getch, if you don't mind, I'd like to use you as a demonstration. Caleb, if you'll come up here. In this particular passage of Scripture in Genesis chapter 48, we're going to have, Dr. Getch is going to be Um, Jacob or Israel in the passage. Caleb is going to be, we'll pick one or the other, Ephraim or Manasseh, one or the other, okay? 
And what we're going to read here, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I just want to point a few things out. And I'm going to demonstrate this because this is so important that you understand what Peter was trying to relay here. Genesis chapter 48, verse 2, the Bible says, or in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass after these things that one told Joseph, Behold, thy father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And one told Jacob and said, Behold, thy son Joseph cometh unto thee, and Israel strengtheneth himself and sat upon the bed. So if you could picture here, uh, Dr. Getch here, he is, he is now Jacob, and he, he has been bedridden, and, and he's very sickly, and now he sets up on the edge of the bed. He cannot stand, but he sets on the edge of the bed. And now Jacob brings in, and I'll be, uh, uh, not, not Jacob, but uh, Joseph brings in Ephraim and Manasseh. So we've got Ephraim and Manasseh. They come in now, and, and, and we're going to have them right here before Israel or Jacob. And so, so Joseph brings them in now, and notice the next thing here in verse 9. After the introductory things that go on, it said, And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God hath given me in this place. And he said, Bring them. Jacob says, Bring them, I pray thee unto me, and I will bless them. Now how many of y'all believe he intended on blessing them? So he brings, Joseph does, he brings Ephraim and Manasseh up here so that they can be blessed. But notice he does not bless them. There's something here that happens. In verse 10, Now the eyes of Israel were dim for age so that he could not see, and he brought them near unto him. So he brings them up close right here, okay, a little bit closer. And so he can't quite make them out. Now notice what it says here uh, in this. It says, and he kissed them and embraced them. That's all he did. Now I'm not going to ask you to kiss him. <laughs> but you get the picture, right? So he, he kisses them and embraces them, but he does not bless them. <clears throat> Now, Joseph does something very strange here. Joseph pulls them back now, pulls them back. And notice what Joseph does here. It says, and Joseph brought them out from between his knees and bowed himself with his face to the earth. So Joseph now, he gets down and he bows himself to the earth. You know what he's doing? Jacob can't see, but they can and they're bewildered. Where's the blessing at? He just hugged us and kissed him. He said, bring him here and bless but he didn't. He just hugged him and kissed him. He shows them now what they're supposed to do. He bows down. He's given them a sign or a symbol, if you would, of what they need to do to get the blessing. Now, turn with me, if you would, and look at verse 13. It says there that now Joseph brings them back up. And, 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 and Dr. Getch, I want you to hold your arm straight out like this right here. Notice the wording in verse 14 here, if you would. In verse 14, and Israel did not stretch up his arm. Where did he stretch it? Out. He stretches out his arm. He is now seated. And now they know what to do. So if you would, I want you to lower yourself down. Now look, what did he have to do to get under the hand? He had to lower himself down. Under that hand is where the blessings of God were at. Do you know that that started a tradition of the Jewish fathers that they would do that and they would not raise their hand one inch if a stubborn, rebellious child would not lower themselves down to get under the hand, then they did not get the blessings of God. They had to lower and humble themselves to get under the hand of the Father. Thank you. You can go back to your seat now. I said all that to say this. Peter said, humble yourselves therefore 
under the mighty hand of God. Do you know what Peter had in mind? He had that very tradition in mind. And if you could picture with me, God is setting up in heaven. He is not standing, but He is seated on His throne. He's got His hand outstretched. And all He's wanting is for His children to simply come to Him and to get up underneath the hand of God where the blessings of God are at. Now there's several things that are very important with that. When you got underneath the hand of God, number or underneath the hand of the Father, number one, there would be a pardon that could be given. If that son or that child owed a debt of some form, then that father could pardon that debt. Boy, I'm thinking about a time back in 1993 when I owed a debt that I could not pay and at Lane Street Baptist Church, I came to, to an old-fashioned altar. I knelt down there and I got under the hand of God and thank God God put His hand on me and He forgave my debt and He saved my soul from hell and He washed me in the blood of the Lamb and He gave all the, that heaven holds to me and blessed me and gave me the pardon that I needed for my sin. Number one, he had to get there and get under the hand to get the pardon. But then number two, if he got under the hand, there would be provision that would be there. Hey, hey, when you got under that hand, it got you blessed. And you know what that father could do? That father could give you anything you needed. He could give you the money. He could give you land. He could give you all kinds of provisions that would be there. You want to know how to get God to meet your needs? Get under His hand. Hey, sometimes some of you are going to be in a ministry and you're going to think, how in the world am I going to make ends meet? How is this going to be possible? How can I possibly build a new building? Hey, those of you that have been here at Lancaster, you've already been through this and you know, hey, if you get under the hand of God, there is not a thing in this world that you need that God cannot provide. There's a provision that's there. Number three, there's a protection that you would find under that hand. If that father had an army at his disposal, say David, whenever he was uh, giving blessings to Solomon or or, or maybe even some guards of some sort or servants that would protect. When they got under that hand, then that, that child, he could give him the same protection. He could dispatch his guards, his army, or his servants to protect that child. You want to know how to stay protected? By God, get under his hand. Thank God he's got angels all around us, guardian angels, whatever you want to call them, that can protect you. He can put a hedge of protection on you, and you can have what you need to be protected in this life. But I got another one for you. According to myjewishlearning.com Now get this. This is great because some of you are going to need this. <laughs> if you would lower yourself down and get that blessing when the blessing was given. Now listen carefully. That father, while he had his hand on that child if he had multiple children, would lean over and whisper in the ear of that child something encouraging that only they could hear before he ever took his hand off that child's head. You know what that tells me? That tells me you get under the hand of God, you can have peace. Do you know that there's going to be times in this life when you're going to be so devastated and so down and so discouraged that there ain't nothing your wife can tell you or your husband can tell you that's going to make a difference. There's only one that can give you the peace that passeth all understanding. And that is God Himself. 
And you will not find peace until you get under the hand of God. And you know what He'll do at that crucial and critical moment in your life? He'll lean right down to where you're at and whisper in your ear and tell you something that you need to know. And He'll give you the peace that you need to give you the strength that you need and the encouragement to keep on going when everybody else wants to quit, including you. What a blessing to get underneath the hand of God. But you've got to lower yourself to get there. He won't raise His hand one inch for you. But thank God, we can lower ourselves as much as we need to for Him. I want to close with this story. I've got a friend of mine that I preached for in Bristol, Virginia. And if there's ever been a tiny church, this was a tiny church. As a matter of fact, the entire church itself held 20 people. I've never seen a church this small before. And I would go in and I would preach for this brother and, and oftentimes there would be two people, three people in that church. And this man had been there for two and three years, but he was a very, very, very humble man. And oftentimes he'd say, I don't understand this. Matter of fact, we take our youth choir to sing, our youth choir couldn't even get in the building because our youth choir filled up all the seats. They couldn't even get people in there. So that's how small it was. There'd be times when I'd be preaching, there'd be maybe four people sitting there. And he was often discouraged, but he stayed humble. He didn't understand it, but he stayed humble, and he stayed with that church. And I told him, listen, one time I said, listen, I said, I don't think I've ever felt as sorry for a man as, as I have for this brother. I, I just, it devastated me. I mean, he had such a heart to do something. He was knocking on doors. He was trying to do everything he could to win souls. It was kind of a, a, a tough area. And he just, even if he won 20 people to the Lord, he would have packed his church out, and that would have been it. Just the other day, he called me and he said, Brother, you ain't going to believe this. Now, he had done this for three or four years. I expected him fully to move and leave. He called me up and he said, you ain't going to believe this. He said, I was praying at 10 o'clock the other night saying, God, you've got to do something. You've got to give us a different building. Nobody's ever going to take us uh, or, or come in here and think that we're going to have a sustainable ministry in this little tiny building. We've got to have room to grow. God, you've got to do something. And he said, at 10.30 that night, he got a call. And there was a church that was there in Bristol, Virginia, getting ready to close its doors. And a guy called up and said, I don't know why, but we were getting ready to give this entire complex over to the city of Bristol and let them do whatever they wanted with it because we can't afford to even pay the taxes on it. The church had nobody in it. He said, but just a minute ago, God told me to give you the keys to this church. He gave him the keys to this church. They signed the deed over. This church holds hundreds of people. It has a complex for a Christian school that they used to have, a full gymnasium and a bus. And they even gave him the keys to the bus. And within, after years, a pastor in this little tiny church with three or four people in it, within three months, they had seen 80 people come to Christ. They had three kids in that church and they were all his foster kids. Now they run a full bus of kids. I went there to preach the other day and that place was packed with people. You want to know why? Because a man kept himself humble and under the hand of God and when due time, he said it, it says it shall, it shall exalt you in due time. When the time was right, God blessed him. You want to know why? Because he stayed under the hand of God.